have a question for you, Claire. If a company knows it has a pay gap and it wants to fix it, why not just pay women more? I mean, it makes sense to me, but it's not actually that easy. In the short term, it works, but as a permanent solution, not really. Take Salesforce, for example, the big San Francisco software company. They tried it, and they're still working on it. The process started in 2015, when they decided to do an audit to find out if they even had a pay gap. That first year, they kept it pretty simple. They looked only at base salaries, people with the same job type, broken down by gender. They found that 6% of Salesforce's employees were being underpaid for no apparent reason. It wasn't because they were working fewer hours or didn't have a lot of experience. They were comparing software developers to software developers, receptionists to receptionists. So did they then pay those people more money? Yep. Salesforce spent $3 million that first year bumping people up. Granted, its revenue that year was $6.7 billion, but still, that's a lot of money. And not just women got raises. There were some men who were being underpaid, too. So then everything was fixed? Yep, the end. No, actually, it was the exact opposite. When they did the audit again the following year, they added race to the equation, factored in bonuses in addition to base pay, and found another 11% of people who were underpaid. Fixing that cost the company another $3 million. Here's Cindy Robbins, the head of HR at Salesforce. That second year was also a big learning for us because... It was a year that we had just finished acquiring some of our biggest acquisitions, uh, 14 companies that we acquired the previous year. So when you acquire 14 companies, you acquire also their pay practices. So they keep bumping up people's salaries, but are they doing anything to keep the pay gap from coming back again and again? Yeah, they are. They figured out that those 11% of people A lot of them were new to the company and had basically arrived at Salesforce already underpaid. And Salesforce had been naively basing their salaries off their old ones. Our recruiting organization is no longer asking the question, what is your current compensation? Now it's, what is the compensation you expect? Which is making candidates pause and think about it. And we're not forcing them to answer it on the spot. They may need some time to do their own level of research and come back to us. Yeah, but asking someone what they think they should make still puts the burden on them to say what they deserve. Exactly. And if you're underpaid but don't know it, you might lowball your own offer. So it's not a perfect solution. No. And when they did the analysis again this year, Salesforce found another 6% gap, costing another $2.7 million. Part of the problem is that there's so many factors that go into creating the pay gap. Plus, Cindy keeps thinking of new factors to add to her analysis. I never thought to myself, oh, should I look at how we distribute merit? Oh, should I look at how we distribute promotions at the beginning of the year by gender, by pay practices? It sounds like Salesforce is trying and has made some strides, but it hasn't fixed the pay gap. No. And the company doesn't expect to fix it, as in eliminate the entire issue anytime soon. The pay gap is just a numerical reflection of the way our society and economy are set up. No matter what size your company is, you're probably going to encounter at least some of the factors that lead to the pay gap. That's something Cindy says has been hard for people to understand. You know, do we still want to be fixing 6% of the population? No. But, you know, it's an audit. And 
data is being inputted, assumptions sometimes are being made. I think you're always going to have to do the audit every single year. And that they're always, there's always going to be some level of room for error, and that's the error you want to identify and you want to fix. But are our systems perfect to ensure that we are paying everyone equally? Not yet, and that's what we're working on. When you look at the world, you know, we're 50% of the population. Like, where is our place? Like, where is our value? Women deserve equal pay for equal work. And nationwide, the median salary for men is greater than women in 99.6% of major occupations. Women, what do they want? We want to end gender inequality. And to do this, we need everyone involved. It's a concept called information asymmetry. If you don't know what the going rate is for your salary, it's easier for the company to rip you off. Girl power, equalization between the sexes. I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Welcome back to The Paycheck. I'm Rebecca Greenfield. Salesforce's struggle brings up an important point about fixing the pay gap. One company paying women more money is like taking Advil for a broken bone. The pain is going to come back until the bone heals. That's why Salesforce has to do its pay audits year after year. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. And it also only addresses one facet of the pay gap, not the issue of the highest paying jobs generally being held by men. But there are solutions to the pay gap that attempt to heal the bone. Take how Salesforce no longer asks new hires what they made at their previous jobs. Women tend to start out at lower salaries than men. So basing salaries on what people were paid before only perpetuates that inequality. There are about a dozen places, including Massachusetts, California, and New York City, where asking about a job applicant's previous salary is illegal. But the solution isn't perfect, like I talked about with Claire. Women can still end up making less than men for other reasons. They might lowball their offers. They might be perceived as too aggressive during a negotiation. They might still not ask for enough money. But there's more than one way to treat pay disparities at a deeper level, like total salary transparency. If everyone knew how much everyone else was making, then it would be tough for employers to get away with paying certain people less for no reason. And if you know what you could be making, you're more likely to ask for what you deserve. Total pay transparency is kind of extreme. People generally don't like talking about money, and right now, employers take advantage of that. It allows them to keep a chunk of salaries below market rate. And that saves them money. One person who refuses to buy into that social taboo is Jen Schiffer. She's a software engineer in New York, and she talks about her salary about as freely as other New Yorkers talk about real estate prices. But I've always been super like transparent with people who ask me to be with my salary, which kind of got me in trouble at my last job. Well, not like Trump. Trouble's a fake idea. Um, but I did have coworkers who were upset at how much I was talking about and trying to talk about salary. Luckily, Jen now works at Fog Creek, a small software company that last year instituted a policy known as radical pay transparency. 
everyone within a company knowing what everyone else is making, more or less. I decided to investigate. You know, for me at a personal level, uh, it was about treating workers right. That's Anil Dash, the CEO of Fog Creek. He took over the company in December 2016. He came with a mission to make Fog Creek and tech in general more fair to people regardless of gender or race. You know, I grew up in a household with, you know, my mom being in the union uh, her whole life and, and, you know, understanding the importance of respecting workers. I don't think it's any secret as women and, and other underrepresented groups in tech that end up um, trying to negotiate their way to face fair salaries may or may not get there and really sort of ending up behind right when they start. And that permanently impacts the trajectory of your whole earnings over your lifetime. The company only has about three dozen employees, but still, that's no guarantee people were being paid fairly. Transparency, in theory, would not only reveal any pay inequalities that had cropped up in the 20 years Fog Creek existed before Anil got there, it would also help ensure that things stayed equal over the long term by holding the company accountable. Here's Jessica Moy, the head of culture, which is like HR at Fog Creek. I was a little nervous that going from, you know, not transparency to transparency was going to kind of like create adverse reactions for certain people because I just didn't know. I mean, people react really differently to sharing financial information and people's level of comfortability is very different. Like I said, people don't like talking about money. People who make too much money don't want to feel guilty about it, and people not making enough don't want to feel like dupes. That's why Fog Creek decided to take transparency slow. Anil sent out a survey asking people what kind of salary information they'd be okay with sharing. He found out not everyone was as enthusiastic about pay transparency as he was. There were some people that were just sort of like, I don't know how I feel about this. I've never encountered this question before. I don't know what the implications are about talking about my pay. And, and, and in some cases, really going deep into it with some of our team members. They were like, you know, my family's never talked about pay. And I'm, you know, I'm worried about like open salary transparency because like my brother and I don't know what each other makes. And like, I don't want that to be awkward at Thanksgiving. Even Jen Schiffer, who talked a big game about salary transparency, had some anxiety. I'm like, are there other engineers here comparing themselves to me? And if they find out I'm making like, more than them, will they feel slighted? If I'm making less than them, will they feel like that's fair? Like, I, I don't know, like, I don't know. I'm, the, I'm the only woman on my team. And so there's not many women engineers at the company. I, I am always very insecure about whether guys I work with or alongside with think that I am as valuable as a company says I am. Still, not a single person said they preferred the status quo. The company wanted more pay transparency. The next step before telling anybody anything about what their colleagues were making was to do an internal audit of compensation at Fog Creek. And... We found that we had inequities. I mean, I think any, any company that's been around for more than five minutes is going to, if they're being honest. Anil used the data to help him figure out what constituted fair pay in the first place. He looked at what people on each team were making, and then he compared that to information for similar positions that he found on sites like Payscale. Using all of that, he decided on a range that made sense for each job title. I was curious to know if, as expected, women had ended up making less than men. 
Yeah, I think the majority of people that were at the high end of the range were men for sure. But I think the people that were on the low end of the range too were also men. So like it's probably reflecting more of the fact that we don't have uh, as good a gender balance as we should. So men are over-indexed on both the high and low end of of the spectrum. He raised the salaries of two people he found out weren't making enough money even before making all the pay data public. But there were also some people he found who were making too much money. Those people got to stay where they were. Rather than go for truly radical pay transparency, Fog Creek decided to share just those salary ranges with no names attached, just job titles. Anil wouldn't tell me what those were exactly, but finally, last September, he was ready to share them with the rest of the company at one of their monthly town hall meetings. He gathered everyone together. Some people were actually in the office, but others were remote. And he put all the data up on the screen. And... There wasn't a mutiny, but not everyone was happy. You know, some stuff we screwed up. Like we have some departments as a small company that are one person. So we'd listed a salary range for the role of the only person in that department. And they're like, okay, well, my salary is basically out there. Like everybody else is in a team and it's a range. But they're like, if if this is the only person in this role, everybody knows exactly what I make to within a you know $5,000 band. Jessica Moy was one of the people who didn't have anonymity. I'm the only person in my position, so it's pretty clear, like, my this is Jessica's salary band, and everyone knows that that's my job. And I never had any issue with that, so it, for me, it wasn't, like, a, a thing to process. I was like, this is what I make. Even though Jessica didn't mind that everyone knew her salary, you can see why some people might. Jen Schiffer was also in a range of her own, but she had a different problem. Uh, I think it was, like, Some of these ranges are pretty wide, but I would feel more comfortable bringing in other underrepresented people into the company once I know it's like completely fair. Anil knows he has more work to do. To Jen's point, after the town hall, Fog Creek decided to put salary ranges on all of its job postings so that people know they're getting hired on a level playing field. You can't build trust just by saying trust me and not showing anybody the work especially in, in tech where so many people have come from other companies that weren't treating them right or weren't, weren't you know, being fair to them. Um, and so transparency is just the foundation upon which you build a relationship between an employer and a worker that is trusting. And, uh, you know, we try to do that in everything we do. Given how much Anil believes in pay transparency, I asked him how transparent he planned to be with his own salary. It was absurd because I said, it's, this is the range and I make the bottom of it. So I like um, made a structure for any future CEO, I guess. But I, I was I just sort of disclosed my personal salary because I was like, I don't I want to model the thing I want people to feel comfortable doing. Up to now, we've just been trying to solve the pay gap by looking at the numbers. But there are all kinds of things that happen at the office and at different points in women's careers that make a big difference over time in the amount of money they make. And the biggest thing of all is motherhood. Nothing trashes your earning potential like having a kid. Men and women start their careers making about the same amount of money. But the pay gap really starts to show up when men and women hit their late 20s. That is, when employers think women are about to have kids. One study found that the bulk of the pay gap happens between ages 26 and 33 for college-educated women. And this isn't just because women cut back their hours to pick up slack at home. 
Mothers make proportionately less than men based on hours worked, research has found. So what if we could do something about that? Make sure women could have kids and keep earning as much money as their male colleagues. Adobe, the San Jose-based company that makes design software and also the Flash plugin you use to watch videos on the internet, last year announced that they closed their gender pay gap 100% in the U.S. That's for men and women doing the same jobs. But that still doesn't mean the working environment was perfectly equal, especially for women and men who have kids. My colleague Ellen Hewitt explains. Caitlin Ozzie works at Adobe as a recruiter, but right now she's on maternity leave. So Dylan was born on uh, New Year's Eve. So she squeaked in there. We got the tax write-off and everything. <laughs> so, um, and she was 10 pounds, 6 ounces. Huge baby. Yeah, we have big babies in our family. Both men and women at Adobe get 16 weeks of paid paternal or maternal leave, regardless of whether they're the primary caregiver. Birth mothers get an additional 10 weeks of medical leave. That's compared to less than six weeks at the average private company in the U.S. that offers paid leave for a new child. So already, they're doing pretty well. On top of that, the company gives employees the option to take a more flexible work schedule, like when they come back from leave. They call it Adobe Flex Time. I met with Caitlin along with Rosemary Ariata Kuiper, who oversees the Flex Time program. Here's Caitlin. I'm learning with being a new mom. It's like you can plan for the you know every single thing, but nothing really goes to plan. So just having it be, you know, maybe I need to work from home a couple times a month or you know three times in this one week, or just having that flexibility to me is really really. I can see be very helpful when I return back to work. Coming back to work after having a child can be really hard, no matter how much time you got for maternity leave. You're just starting to figure out what being a mom is like, or how to juggle caring for the kids you already have, plus the infant you just brought home. Without the flexibility to ease back into full-time work, some women might decide to downshift to part-time, which drastically limits their earning potential. That usually involves a job switch, And if going back to your old job with a new baby is difficult, finding a new job is much, much harder. Especially when you factor in the cost of daycare in the U.S., lots of women decide that it's just too much and stay home for good. When Caitlin comes back to work this month, she plans to take a day each week to work from home so she can spend the afternoons with her daughter. Adobe has offered the flex time option for years, but it was only in the last year that they started promoting it internally and training managers how to talk to their employees about it. For Caitlin, that was a hugely important change. She was already nearing her due date by the time she found out the option existed. I think um, before they rolled out this program and the framework was more standardized, I don't necessarily think people first knew that this was an option. I think it gives people, at least me, a little bit more of empowerment to think about what I need first. Before they rolled it out, I just assumed I'd come back full time and, you know, you'd it'd be a hard couple weeks and then you just get thrown back in and, and that's that. And um, that was sort of my assumption. And so I, I just don't think people want to ask for, for more unless they, you know, unless it, it's something that they can say, hey, it's a, you know, point to a policy or point to something that's more normalized. Because I think there is a, you know, there is always pressure to be here if you can and things like that. Rosemary knows that pressure well. As the vice president of global rewards for Adobe, 
she knew that even though the option for a flexible schedule was out there, a lot of people who might benefit from it weren't taking it. Yeah, I think there was this sentiment of not realizing that they could take it. It does seem to give permission and lend itself to the ability to be able to say, look, this is documented somewhere. It's kind of a formal product policy. They're promoted. So it does seem to give more permission to individuals to feel like they can ask for it. You know, oftentimes the type of relationship you have with a manager and kind of the the value system or, or what they believe is important dictates oftentimes how much they're willing to, to provide flexibility. And what we realized was is in some organizations, it happened seamlessly. It wasn't an issue. And in others, um, managers weren't as willing um, to do it because they felt like they had demands or, or weren't sure how they could um, manage the program equitably across the organization. Since making Adobe FlexTime more of a formal policy last September, Adobe has seen a 10% increase in the number of people choosing it. Rosemary says that the more normal a flexible work schedule seems, the less likely it is that people who take advantage of it will be implicitly penalized for doing so. Because here's what's worrisome. Right now, even though both parental leave and flex time are offered to men and women, men are still taking way less time off. What we're seeing is, is most men on average are taking closer to a month. And the feedback that we've gotten is, is, is because, you know, I've got, we don't both need to be at home is essentially the response that we've gotten, even though they both have the ability to be at home. The point of encouraging men to use programs like parental leave and flex time isn't just so that women have some help at home, although it's that, too. The point is so that women and men share the burden of childcare more equally, including the workplace penalties that come with it. When you miss a major career opportunity because you're at home taking care of the kids, that can be frustrating. But right now, women still do twice as much of the childcare in the U.S. That means that those missed opportunities are falling disproportionately on them. I'd love to see more men start taking the time off, right, and taking advantage of these programs, because I think that act in itself will also kind of level the paying field. Two parents, each with the flexibility to balance work and home life, it does sound pretty idyllic. It's also good for women's earnings. A study in Sweden found that for each month of paternity leave the father takes, the mother's income rises by an average of 7%. But in the U.S. at least, we're a long way from that kind of thing being normal. Only 15% of private sector workers get any paid parental leave at all. Changing the way we deal with women and men and work isn't something that happens all at once. Pay discrimination has been illegal since the 60s, but that hasn't stopped companies from paying women less over the years. That's because sexism is a way bigger problem than the pay gap. No one company is going to solve sexism for everyone. But Rosemary's right. The more places where gender equality is the norm, the harder it is for everyone else to keep treating men and women differently. Next week on The Paycheck, we're going to talk about how individual women are trying to solve the pay gap for themselves. Some are even resorting to motivational chanting. You are not going to want to miss it. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of The Paycheck. If you like the show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to rate, review, and subscribe. This show was reported by Ellen Hewitt, Claire Suddeth, and hosted and reported by me, Rebecca Greenfield. It was edited by Jillian Goodman and produced by Liz Smith. We also had help from Francesca Levy, Janet Paskin, and Magnus Henriksen. Our original music is by Leo Sidron. Carrie Vanderyacht did the illustrations on our show page, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash The Paycheck. Francesca Levy is Bloomberg's head of podcasts.